Most shelters require an ID to get a bed for the night. Most food banks require ID to get food. And so we had all these people saying, I can't live or survive or feed myself or my children. Can you help me get an ID for that? And that was the first time that I realized that we had this much bigger ID problem. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Kat Calvin, is the founder of Spread the Vote and Project ID and author of the book American Identity in Crisis, Notes from an Accidental Activist. I first interviewed Kat back in 2017, and she spent the past six years or so growing her organizations and broadening their reach, tackling the unexpectedly giant problem of millions of Americans without government identification. I really enjoyed catching up with Kat and learning what she's been up to, both in state and federal policy reform and in the hand-to-hand combat of helping thousands of people get their IDs. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kat Calvin of Spread the Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. It's been a while. It has. Nice to see you. Back at you. So we talked back in 2017 in the fall. Wow. Um, God, I knew it was a long time ago, but that was forever ago. So six years of uh, you working hard, I bet. Yes. Yes. Very hard. And you're still going, which is exciting. Except for one six-month stretch where I did one a week. I did, I've done three a week for that entire time. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I'm between 950 and 1,000 of these so far. So. Wow. Very few podcasts ever reach numbers like that. That's amazing. Well done. Actually, there's just a endless supply of interesting people to talk to in this space. So I think that's what's driving it. And I that's do great. enjoy it. And I'm really glad to see you again and have you back. Do you want to catch me up, Kat, on what has happened <laughs> since the end of 2017? Just, like, just quickly go through what maybe a little bit chronologically what you've been up to. I know you've ended up with a book and other organizations, but mainly on the same path that yeah. we had talked about with Spread the Vote. We've grown. Uh, you know, we spent the last six, seven years really just um, sort of expanding both statewide and expanding more in the states that we're in. Uh, we've helped over 11,000 people now. For people who don't know, summarize what it is you do and Ryan, I founded and run um, Spread the Vote Plus Project ID, which is a 501c3. And then our 501c4 that we started in 2020, Project ID Action Fund. What we do on the C3 side is we help folks get government-issued photo ID. 
26 million American adults don't have ID. And so we work on helping them get that. We started back when we first spoke, we were probably in two or three states, maybe. We're in, God, I don't even know now, <laughs> 25-ish now. We're starting a new initiative next year, and we'll actually be working at all 50. I'm, we've helped over 11,000 people get IDs. Really, what we do is help folks get all the documents required, transportation, everything they need to get an ID in their hands uh, that they can use for jobs, housing, healthcare, life, and voting in most states. In 2020, we started our C4 so that we could work on policy. So we have a bill in Congress now, the IDs for an Inclusive Democracy Act, that would establish a free and optional federal ID, uh, which we're really working on getting passed, and also state and local legislation, and really just trying, the C4 is trying essentially to put the C3 out of business by just making sure that every American has an ID. So yeah, it's been a lot of of hard work, learning and growing and building. I'm, and I came out with a book in September, uh, actually almost exactly two months ago, called American Identity in Crisis, all about our ID work and and what uh, how you know how we got to 11% of American adults not having IDs and what that looks like and how we can solve it. And that's that's a short update to what we've been up to since 2017. <laughs> Well, I think for people who may not have listened to that first episode or followed your career as closely as they should have, I think a lot of people who do have IDs assume that everybody does and assume that getting one is a trivial matter, relatively speaking, or was for them. It isn't for everybody. Why? Yeah, I mean, look, we've all been to the DMV, so we all know what an adventure that is. And then, you know, think about the the stack of documents that you need to get an ID, right? You need birth certificates, you need proofs of residency, you need your social security card in most states, you need all these different things, which is difficult enough for those of us who have been fortunate enough to have housing our whole lives, who were fortunate enough to get birth certificates when we were born, which many people don't, who have been fortunate enough not to have had a fire or a hurricane or flood destroy our homes. Um, but when that happens, you know, if you go to Vital Records and ask for a birth certificate, they'll ask for your ID. But if you go to DMV and ask for an ID, they'll ask for your birth certificate. And so the process of getting those things is challenging and it's expensive. And if you are unhoused, if you are a returning citizen, if you are a senior citizen, if you are a former foster youth, there are a lot of different demographics for whom those things that seem pretty easy for those of us who are lucky to have a home and a job and some stability, suddenly it becomes difficult, if not impossible. And so that's how you end up with 26 million American adults who don't have photo ID is because there's just barrier after barrier after barrier. And for a large part of the population, those barriers are not possible to overcome on their own. What are the consequences of not having an ID? I mean, you can't get a job without an ID, right? Legally, you can't get housing. Uh, you can't access most social services if you want SNAP or WIC or any sort of your veterans benefits, any sort of benefits, you need an ID. If you want to go to school, you need an ID. If you are lucky enough to get a Section 8 housing voucher, you need an ID, right? And so Anything that would provide stability or income, you need an ID for, but you need stability and income in order to be able to acquire that ID. So you really end up in a catch-22. Are there any states that have solved this problem? No. It's kind of shocking. Like, supposed to be laboratories of democracy. There's a lot of states with really good intentions around social services. And does it vary quite a bit? 
It varies somewhat. You know, every state has basically the same requirements. You know, there'll be differences for like how many proofs of residency and what they can be. There are a couple of states that don't require your actual social security card, which getting that without an ID is a real nightmare. They basically require the same thing. You know, there are a lot of differences in what states say uh, will have free IDs for folks who are unhoused, although that doesn't cover all of the documents and everything. And usually there's a barrier to getting whatever you need to get that free ID, you know, but things like that. It's surprisingly challenging. You know, we have two bills in the uh, California state legislature uh, right now. And one we got through both chambers, uh, it would have given um, free driver's licenses, which went up $10 this year to cost $41 in California now. And of course, in most cities in America, you need a driver's license to be able to hold a job because you got to commute, especially in California. Um, so it would have given free driver's licenses to the unhoused and free birth certificates to low-income Californians. Um, birth certificates are about 30 bucks a pop if you need them for everything. And they're really hard for people to afford. And we got it passed through the assembly and then uh, Gavin Newsom vetoed it. <laughs> Was that vetoed as part of a, a larger thing or a standalone? It was standalone. So what- I, that's not the first time I've heard of him uh, vetoing something that seemed progressive and reasonable. What's going on there? We're still trying to figure out what the actual reason is. But, you know, one of the, the things, because our other bill uh, would provide free IDs for all veterans in California. Uh, and the, the pushback that we get from these is from the DMV and the county clerks associations because they don't want to lose out on the money, even though they're both state-run organizations. And so one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that it's still so difficult to convince people that this is actually an issue, even if it's affecting millions of people in your state, right? We don't see the people who are affected by this. And so we don't really think about what is it going to take for this unhoused guy to get off the street? Oh, he needs an ID. Oh, let's let's figure out something. You know, we're just like, well, let's just get them out of the way. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to convince people, no, this is a real issue that matters. And also there are real benefits economically, health-wise, safety-wise, et cetera, by helping folks get IDs, it is a, an argument that we're having to just make over and over again because it's an issue that most people haven't thought about. Remind me, how did you come to care about this? Yeah, well, so when I started, I, like most people, had only encountered an ID issue as a voter ID issue. And so after the 2016 election, it was really clear that a lack of people being able to access IDs had impacted uh, the election. And so I thought, you know, there was no national organization helping folks get IDs. So I was like, well, I'll do that. Why not? As soon as we started and we were talking to people about getting them, you know, voter IDs so they can vote and people were saying, I can't get a job. I can't get housing or food. Most shelters require an ID to get a bed for the night. Most food banks require ID to get food. And so we had all these people saying, I can't live or survive or feed myself or my children. Can you help me get an ID for that? And that was the first time that I realized that we had this much bigger ID problem. Now, 11,000 plus people later, I've just seen so many stories of how not having an ID impacts people's lives, is literally life or death often. It's impossible to move forward or improve your life without one. And so now it is my life's calling and obsession because I just see over and over and over again how having an ID is the thing that, you know, can open the key to being able to actually have a safe and healthy life. It feels to me like this is a government problem 
not a nonprofit problem. (laughs) It's a government scale problem. And it's a problem that it almost seems like ought to be a mandate, like a basic mandate. We do a census. We are tracking people in various ways. We ought to be providing people an easy way to get an ID or it should be conveyed to them at birth and updated for every service, for every interaction with government at every level. It seems like a necessity. How is it that in a very wealthy country with uh, a long history of improving itself over time in some regards that we're still here? I mean, you know, we're also we're virtually the only country in the world that has this problem, right? Particularly the only developed country, but even most undeveloped countries, that we we are the only people that have this problem. You could ask that question about a lot of things, right? Like, why don't we provide healthcare for people, or why do we not think food is a basic but human right? But this is such a smaller this is such a smaller ask of the government. It's a smaller ask, but it's all part of this same belief that we have that you have to earn the right to be alive, um, and that it is not the government's responsibility to make that easier in any way, shape, or form. The reason that we have this bill, the really reason that we're really pushing for it is that, A, it is a government problem, but also if you just take a second to think about what is the economic impact of a country when 11% of its adults can't legally work, right? Like that in itself should be something that makes the government take up notice. There's probably a lot of them that are working, but they're working in a... You're under the table. Like, yes, they're not. They're working in, sort of in the black market. They're working for cash. They're not getting health insurance or anything else that goes along right. with it. And security. often in, in extremely exploitative environments. I mean, we just hear so many horror stories because when you have to work under the table because it's the only way and then that means there's no recourse, right? You can't go to the cops if someone's exploiting you and your illegal job. There are people who who find work, but I'm it's not it's not good work, right? And it's not you're not paying taxes, you're not getting insurance, you're not getting all of the things that I um, you should be getting. You can't even really prove your income if you need to for housing or things like that. Yeah. What is the intersection with politics here? Like, what, who is the opposition to this? When you put a bill forward in California or, in, or nationally, who is organizing themselves on the other side, if anybody? It depends on where we are. Obviously, anytime you talk about IDs, you get opposition from folks who only see IDs in voting and who think, you know, there was a, a bill in Arizona to give all unhoused people IDs. And the reason that um, it didn't pass is because the argument was, well, they would be able to vote then and we don't want that, right? So well, sometimes it's that. Just pause on that for just a second, okay? So is it as straightforward as that? Often. These indigent people or or whatever we want to think of them would be Democrats and they shouldn't have identification cards because then they might vote. Right. And hilariously, they're very much not all Democrats, obviously. But yeah, a lot of it is that we get a lot of opposition in California right now and other places from the DMV and the county clerks, the people who collect the money for these things who say, well, if we give these people these things for free. But the law could compensate them at $40 per person. That would be I mean, that would be a budgetary question. But the amount of money that the state would make from these folks being able to work, being off the streets, because homelessness is very expensive to the state. Being taxable. 
Yep. Right. I mean, they would right. be taxable, tax, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, it, it's so outweighed. So it's, it's an insane argument, but it is, it's an argument that we get a lot. Also, we get a, an argument on the left a lot that um, they don't want a federal ID because then the government would be able to track us, which I say, I don't know what government you think you have. <laughs> and they are tracking us. Also, we have a government ID. It's called a social security number. COVID really helped because the government was able to send us stimulus checks without asking us any questions. They knew how much we made and how many children we have and where we live. And all of a sudden the checks showed up. And so anyone who's still under the illusion that the government somehow doesn't know everything about you, right? Like, has been taken away. And so this argument that it's worth keeping 26 million people in poverty because we don't want the government to have information they already have has always really rung pretty false to me, but it is one that we get sometimes. Does that mean that the government could just essentially issue an ID? Yeah, I mean, think about it. They could do anything they wanted to, right? They could absolutely just send everyone an ID right now. They mailed us all money more than once. They know where we are. They absolutely could. It it shouldn't even take a bill. So I'm somewhat dumbfounded by the fact that we talked six years ago and you're still at it. Not because the problem has been solved, obviously, but because it, it just seems so frustrating What has kept you in this? You must have been getting moments of inspiration and feelings of accomplishment along the way. What has has kept you fighting this fight? I tell a lot of stories of our clients in the book and it's just, you know, every single day, I just, I had a a team meeting yesterday and our general counsel told us all about um, a woman in Florida who had gotten in touch with her. She was having an impossible time getting a birth certificate. She went to agency after agency and they all said, we can't help you. We can't help you. And so Marissa, our general counsel said, well, I'll help you. And she got in touch with the Florida officials and figured it out and ordered her birth certificate and sent it to the woman. And she called her just crying and she said what so many of our clients say, I'm a person again, which we hear over and over because you're just not without identification. And that is what keeps us going. And we share those stories at meetings and we all have those stories of when we go out and help folks get IDs and pretty much everyone, you know, even our general counsel, me, we're always out helping folks and seeing how much it changes lives. You know, I've had grown men just crying in my car because they got a birth certificate and ID for the first time in 10 or 15 or 20 years and nobody could help them and we got it for them. And yes, we want to solve this problem nationally and we need to, and I will be 95 and still trying, but being able to help people every single day and being able to see how much that changes lives and how important it is, is the thing that keeps us going. Even though this is a really hard year, we have hard years and we have times when it's really, really tough or we have to deal with really hard people, but it's worth it because we know that these people need our help. They need these ideas. And once you see how much it changes someone's life, you can't stop. So you have put a lot of effort into 11,000 people. Boy, anything you do 11,000 times, uh, (laughs) it adds up. It's a big number. Tell me a couple stories from that. Are there stories of both people succeeding and people failing ultimately, even with your help to get an ID? I opened the book with the worst story, my first ID, which we never got, which I will let people read, but it does happen sometimes. One of my best stories from this year was this young woman named Rhonda 
She is deaf and I'm a young Black woman about my age, actually. She was living in a tent on the streets in Skid Row, which is a dangerous place for anybody, and especially a woman and especially a deaf woman, and really needed a birth certificate so she could get an ID, so she could get housing. And it took us forever to get her birth certificate. She didn't have communication with her parents. She didn't know a lot about her past, et cetera. We finally got it. And then she and I and her case manager, who was so excited, we all went to the DMV and we got her her ID. It was probably a three or four month process from when she first came to see us. And within maybe two weeks, she came running in and showed me her badge because she'd gotten placement in an apartment. And she had her own key and her own apartment and she was safe and off the streets for the first time. And she was so happy. I was so happy. My mother who volunteers with us was so happy. We were just all crying. And it was amazing for me. Like she was so unsafe and I was so worried about her all the time. And to know that she was able to get off the streets and be somewhere safe meant everything. And Rhonda is probably my favorite story of the year, but we have a lot like that. How many people working for you now? We are usually at about 20 this year. At this time of the year, we're down a little bit and we'll probably be back up a little bit next year. Um, But we range between, you know, like sort of 10 and 20, depending on the year and fundraising in our budget. Tell me a little bit about building an institution like this over these years that, that, that are in question. Where have you found money, people? What have been the challenges in growing it? from you to 20 people? The challenges are having any sort of life outside. (laughs) It's a lot of hard work. It's been a a rough seven years. Money comes from a few places. I mean, a lot is just individual donors. People think of sending $20 doesn't mean anything, but it does. Because when you have thousands of people sending you $20, that means a lot. And if your average ID cost is $40, that's half an ID, right? And so um, a lot of individual donations, also a lot of foundations. There are really great big foundations and family foundations and people who grant money in a variety of different ways. Those are, are sort of the biggest ways that we fundraise. Staffing is... I've been so lucky because so much of the staff has been with the organization since 2017 or 18, you know, since our earliest days and are like the most amazing people in my life. I'm a tiny nonprofit. I run it from my bedroom. It's just me. And there's all these people I care about so much. And it's my responsibility to make sure that, you know, they get salaries and they can like have health insurance and pay for their kids school supplies or whatever. It's very, very stressful and it's very difficult. Um, And I care as much about them as I do about making sure that we can keep serving our clients um, and our partners. People think that being the executive director of a nonprofit is very sexy and exciting, but really most of the time you're behind a desk, either on Zoom meetings or looking at spreadsheets or making plans or crying or whatever. But it's just, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of project management and a lot of organization and a lot of going over your budget every single day and just trying to do everything you can to keep an organization together, staying on mission. And particularly with an organization like ours, where, you know, we know every single day we get so many calls and so many emails and so many texts from people who need IDs. These folks need help and I have this incredible staff that needs support. And so I've got to do whatever I can to make it happen. It's a lot of persistence and hard work, but it's worth it. I'm somewhat acquainted with what the starting salary is for someone coming out of, say, the University of Michigan Law School, which you did, (laughs) and what it changes to over time. Do you think you've made financial sacrifices to run this? Uh, I think my monthly student loan bill would say yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
absolutely. Yeah, I definitely have. Um, I think my law school classmates are probably I'm living the high life a little more than I am. But when I think about like 11,000 people who have IDs, that is worth more than a big firm salary could ever be. I also summered at a firm between my first and second years of law school. And I was like, well, I can't do this. <laughs> absolute misery. So I'm also a much happier person because I never would have survived law firm. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So what have you learned about leadership and management from running this? The first thing that comes to mind is It is hard. And this is, it's a a real millennial problem, right? Where uh, we tend to be way too nice and so forgiving and whatever, because we all had horrible bosses and horrible, horrible experiences. And so we want to like give everyone all these chances, et cetera. And I have had times when I haven't dealt with situations as swiftly perhaps as I should have, because I've wanted to give people all the benefit of the doubt, et cetera. And one of the things that I've really had to learn is my main priority is making sure that the organization is strong and healthy and that everybody who's working in it is healthy and that we're able to fulfill our mission. And that that means that I can't always be as extremely like kind and forgiving as I may want to be, that I always have to think about what's best for the organization. And that also means I have to set my ego aside. You know, people will accuse you of things or lie or this and that or whatever. And you, you have to just constantly think about what's best for the mission. And I've gotten very good at <laughs> swallowing my ego and just being able to make a, you know, sort of a rational choice, not based on my feelings or how I feel about, you know, this particular person or organization or whatever, but what is going to be the thing that is, that is best for the organization. And that is a very hard thing to do. You can't make, emotional decisions based on on what's best for you or what feels best in the moment. We are an extremely vacation forward organization. <laughs> we have a lot of mandatory vacations. We have unlimited vacations. I'm really big on making sure that people get a lot of time because it is emotionally exhausting working for an organization like this. There are 26 million people who need IDs. There will never be a day when we aren't getting bombarded with people who need help. It could take so much out of you. And one of the things that is so critical for me and for my staff and that, you know, I've had to sort of train everyone because the nonprofit mindset is, well, I've just got to work myself to death all the time to help all these people. And I've really had to train us all to be like, no, we have to take breaks and you need to rest. And even if you can't go away on vacation, spend a week sitting on your couch watching TV because we can either work really, really hard for two years and burn ourselves out, or we can take breaks and make sure we're healthy and be here for a very long time to serve. I'm curious about this federal legislation that you mentioned, because it seems like if you could get half the people an ID through something like that, it would probably equal about a thousand years of 11,000. It's just monumentally different in scale. What are the chances? What has to happen to get an actual majority of the U.S. Congress? Or what does Congress have to look like to allow that? It is a bill that is actually pretty bipartisan, right? It's a jobs bill. It's an economics bill. We have folks on both sides of the aisle who are interested. The challenge that we're facing is a challenge that everybody who's dealing with Congress is facing, and frankly, the country, is 
there is an element of Congress that isn't interested in passing anything good, right? They don't care, like they're, they're sort of just chaos monsters. That is why it's been so difficult for anything to get passed. If we have a Congress that is full of reasonable people who are actually interested in making change on either side of the aisle, that this passes. Uh, but it means that there are certain members that need to not be there. We right now are working on a strategy of, first of all, just bringing on as many folks as we can. Uh, And there are a lot who are interested and willing to support. The bill is in the House right now. We're working on getting a Senate bill introduced and then working on the Senate side. Uh, We also are bringing on more and more external stakeholders, which is really helpful. And we're also using the momentum of this bill to be able to go to different states and work on state legislation as well. While we're waiting for Congress to pass this bill, can we get California, Florida, Arizona, whatever else to pass bills that would at least expand ID access in their states? And it's really helpful having a bill in Congress to be able to really show how important this is to state legislators and be like, look, there's a bill in Congress about this, you know. Um, And so I think that we probably have a few years until we have a Congress that wants to move things forward. I actually... And a little bit hopeful because we now even have Republicans saying to their own party, like, hey, what have we done? Like, I can't even go to my people and say we've done anything, you know? And I think the fact that people are starting to say that out loud is a really good sign. I think that we keep watching that and we keep trying to talk to those folks and move forward, but that we also use this to be able to pass legislation across states and local jurisdictions as well. This aspect of your work, it feels a little different. The public policy changes. Do you enjoy that as much? Do you enjoy it more? What's your relationship with those two different aspects of your job? Uh, I I love it. You know, I am a lawyer, so I love the policy. I love getting to sort of be um, on the Hill and talk to staffers, to talk to members and really talk to them about the issues, particularly because this is something that every single member of Congress should know is an issue and they often don't. So me getting to be in their offices and say, Hey, you know, 26 million people and there are people in your jurisdiction and really open their eyes to the issue is, is fantastic. It's also the C4's goal to put the C3 out of business. So the more that we do this, the more we hopefully get to a point where the nonprofit isn't necessary. Um, And so I love doing that work, but it's just going to be critical. And it's so, so important for us to keep doing the C3 work because while we're trying to pass this big legislation, there are people every day on the ground who still need IDs right now. And so being able to help folks get those IDs and take them to the DMV and see them with an ID in their hand and how their lives can change is amazing. I can't really do one without the other at this point because it's so important for me that we solve this problem. It's so important for me to see every single day that we're making changes and that we're changing people's lives. And those two things hand in hand, I think are a big part of how we'll be successful, but also for me are a big part of what keeps me motivated. We talked a little bit about how politics can play a role in this, but does it get snarled up with the immigration debates because undocumented people are going to have a whole different category of ID problems. And then also immigrants, I I assume, have more troubles than people born here. 
It does. It ranges in states. So last year, California passed uh, a law which would make them maybe there are about 15 or 16 states where uh, undocumented folks can get driver's licenses. In about five of those, they can also get uh, non-driver's IDs. California passed a law last year that they would be able to start getting non-driver's IDs in 2027. It's really hard on the ground because we get just dozens of people a week, you know, I would say probably a third of the people that come to us are undocumented and they want and need IDs and we can't help them. Um, and it's really frustrating. Or we can say, well, you can get your driver's license, but you got to have a car and you know, all these different things, uh, which nobody has. And so the challenges that the undocumented face is huge. Also, there are a million different visas that people can be on to be here. And what the requirements are to get an ID with those visas. You know, we took a woman to the DMV who had a work visa, but she hadn't worked enough hours yet to qualify for an ID. (laughs) And like, how is that a thing, right? And so there's so many complications when it comes to state IDs that we deal with in every state with what people need and what they have and whether or not they can even get anything at all. Policy-wise, it probably will become more of an issue as we move forward. But what we see on the ground every day, it really is a challenge. We had just a few months ago, a family of five from Afghanistan who are here and they had all of their, you know, asylum paperwork and their passports and everything. And there was nothing I could do for them because you can't get an ID in California if you are until 2027, if you're undocumented and if you have paperwork, it's, you know, it's really, really complicated uh, and upsetting. It shouldn't be. Does the 26 million figure include undocumented people? No, it's American adults. There's talk about 11 million undocumented people, maybe that's half adults. That's really another another big chunk of people on top of that. Wow, it's a 10% of the country. Yeah, it's 11% of adults, not yeah. including undocumented folks. It'd probably be closer to 12 or 13 if we did, yeah. Wow. It's massive. So what made you decide to write a book about it? You know, because we're trying so hard to get the message out. Most people don't know that this is an issue. Most people don't know that 26 million adults. I never would have guessed the number that big. No. no, right? For everyone working on this, you know, we're shouting from rooftops and we're doing like great podcasts and et cetera. And, you know, when I was just really thinking, what is another way that I can get this message out? I, I thought a book would help. And, and when I was uh, seeking to write the book, I was thinking, oh, maybe this will help me get a bill in Congress. And then we got really lucky and we got the bill before the book came out. Uh, but now I'm like sending it to members of Congress be like, hey, read this or have your staffer read it. Because I think that a book... First of all, I mean, who doesn't want to have a book? And my grandmother's a librarian. I grew up around books. So just having a book is amazing. It feels great. But also it does sort of help to legitimize your issue. Hopefully it'll help people take me a little more seriously, take the issue more seriously. You know, I made it short and funny and pink so that it's not uh, intimidating. Hopefully a lot of books about these issues, like I can't even get through. And I really wanted it to be a book that People could read in a weekend and people could, you know, find some stories that they really felt moved by. And so that when they're talking to their friend, they can say, oh, my God, I just read this book and there was this woman, Carol, and blah, 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 blah. And that hopefully it will just be another way for us to help get the message out there and get people who are willing to support a movement to help make sure we give access to everybody to get IDs. Who have you found to be allies in this effort? 
Oh, lots of folks. You know, uh, social workers and case managers are well aware of the ID issue, but they are generally not trained on how to get them and almost never have any sort of budget. Uh, so we work with a lot of social workers and case managers, uh, librarians who are the greatest people in the world and also really have become social workers a lot on their own. And a lot of different agencies that are the types of organizations that serve the same populations we do, but have challenges helping them get IDs or don't know how or et cetera, who we work with and partner with a lot. There's a whole world of people and organizations and agencies that work with the idealist population for whom they have never really been able to focus on getting IDs. And so they make really great partners. Tell me a little bit about the intersection of this with voting. You originally named your thing, your enterprise spread the vote. Your first lens on this was through that. It feels like you've de-emphasized that a little bit. I might might have gotten that wrong, but obviously with the future of the democracy at stake in upcoming election and a lot of bills going through legislatures over the last few years to mandate IDs to vote, it's an important subject. How, how are you thinking now about IDs and voting and how that's working or not working? I think less than de-emphasizing, we sort of co-emphasize. When we started, we were really thinking about voting and people were like, I don't have a place to sleep or a job. Like, that. I need that. And, and we realized, first of all, there's this massive need and people just need IDs to live. But also, you cannot think about voting when you do not know where you're going to sleep or how you're going to feed your children. And so... Once we help folks get the ID they need for their lives and then talk to them about voting, we actually have a really high voter turnout among our clients because, A, we've helped them get the thing that they need, but also we didn't just show up in October and say, hey, will you vote Like for this thing we care about? We've been there. We we're in the community. They know us. They trust us. And so when we talk to them about voting and we give them voter guides and we want to arrange rides to the polls, et cetera, uh, it's, a, it's an easy conversation to have. So I think that they work hand in hand. And, and this is true in the larger population, too. It is very difficult to ask people to vote when they feel financially insecure, right, when they feel like there's no hope for the future, et cetera. Uh, and so we do both. It's been a big part of our success. You know, we also we have a program called Vote by Mail in Jail, which is the only national program to help incarcerated citizens vote. And we have a 79.4% turnout rate among our participants. We had a 100% turnout rate among our participants in the Cook County Jail because we spend all year working really hard to communicate with incarcerated voters, to train jail staff, to provide all of the materials, to do everything we can to make it as easy as possible for folks who are in a very tough situation to be able to vote. And it's very successful. And so we try to think about what is it that's necessary for folks to feel like they have a stake in the future? And then what are all of the things that we need to do to help them overcome the many, many micro barriers that it takes to even be able to vote um, and be able to have their voice heard in a way that feels very real to them? Since we have co-emphasized, we have very high turnout numbers and we're really successful um, because we're thinking about voters as whole people and just not as people that we need the first Thursday of November. Yeah, it almost seems like a party function back in the days of machines or something like that. Yeah. Like let's take care of our people and and provide to them services that are needed that will then redound to the benefit of the party by making them voters. 
What a novel idea. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a community of nonprofit leaders that you participate in? Like, do you share these, the travails and joys of running things with other people that are in similar positions? Yes, I think it would be very difficult to be a nonprofit leader without other people who get where you're coming from. So yeah, I'm lucky that I have several different communities of different leaders and just friends who also run organizations who I'm able to run things by or go on retreats with or just cry and drink with or whatever. And yeah, it makes a big difference. Any of those have a name that is worth sharing for other people who might be interested? Well, I'm going to tell you some of my favorites. So there is a nonprofit run by my friend Evan in Denver called Warm Cookies of the Revolution, which first of all is a great name, but also he is doing this really incredible thing. He is building what he likes to call civic fitness clubs, where uh, they are trying to teach people every day how to be involved in their local government, how to be involved civically in really creative ways, using art, using community, using politics, using all sorts of different things. So it's really, really smart. And I'm really hoping that he branches uh, outside of Denver soon because they do really amazing work. I have a friend, Alia, who runs an organization called Faith. She does amazing work. She investigates sexual assault that happens in uh, tight-knit religious communities and helps the victims of that assault be able to uh, get justice. And she does incredible work. I mean, she like travels, she travels doing investigations and she's been able to get financial judgments for folks and, and get people fired and sent to jail. Like she's a really, really extraordinary woman who does really amazing work. I mean, I could go on forever. I also have a friend, um, Amkari Williams, who had a book called Microactivism that came out about a month after mine. Really great book. And it's beautifully illustrated. And she, in a much more beautiful and eloquent way, talks about the way that I talk to folks about getting involved when you get that question of like, how can I, you know, become an activist? And she talks about, you know, choose a thing and how to do it and the steps to do it and a really beautiful, easy to read book uh, that I really recommend that folks read as well. So there's, there are a lot of people doing really incredible work. I feel like I may have given a bit of short shrift to your book and also to uh, your current enterprise. Could you tell people why they should read the book, what they will learn from it in brief, just the sort of quick pitch, and also why they ought to help you at your nonprofit and how they could? Happy to. So my book is called American Identity in Crisis. Um, and it's, it is all about uh, sort of basically three things, right? So what is the ID crisis and how did we get here? What does it actually look like? It talks about the work that our organization has done and, and tells the story of our clients and how we learned about this issue. And then talks about how we can solve the problem, um, which you've already heard about, all about our bill and, and what that could do. It hopefully is very accessible and humorous will help illuminate sort of what the issues are in a, in a, in a new and interesting way. Um, so definitely pick that up anywhere. Um, and then, yeah, you can support our... Oh, yes, go ahead. Well, I just noticed there's a, a bunch of pretty cool blurbs on it. How did you find those people or come to know those people? Yeah, I got 
really lucky. I, you know, the blurb process is a nerve wracking and vulnerable process. I, you basically <laughs> email everyone you know and say, can you please say something nice about my book? Um, and I got lucky. So a lot of the people who wrote blurbs are people who either have been friends or supporters or partners in the past are really amazing people. My publisher, which is um, Amistad, an imprint of HarperCollins, I um, got some of their amazing um, writers uh, to read the book and blurb it as well. So it was an effort between me and, and the publisher. So name a few of those people. Yeah. Uh, well, my very favorite blurb of all time was Bakari Sellers, who wrote a really amazing one. Oh, Rebecca Tracer. Oh, I love Rebecca so much. I also got a tiny little cameo in her book, Good and Mad, which is one of my great life accomplishments. But Rebecca wrote one, which was amazing. April Ryan, who is just such an incredible person. Um, Lauren Duca, who actually hilariously introduced me to my literary agent and also gave me the title of the book, Identity Crisis, which we then like added to. But which Lauren is a great a title, by the way. It's a Thank very good very title. Much. Yes. I love it. And the country has <laughs> such an identity crisis on so many levels of, of that, of thinking through that term. Yeah, totally. I mean, totally. I, yeah. So no, I was lucky that, that I'm a lot of really, really wonderful people gave their two cents about the book. Yeah. So if you'd like to uh, support our work, uh, spreadthevote.org slash donate. And we appreciate your support there. Also, if you want to learn more about the bill or scripts and information about how you can call, email or text your member of Congress to support it, you can go to ID for ID, the number four dot org. Um, and there's all sorts of information there about the bill. Is there a question I should have asked you that I have failed to? Actually, no, that was great. You ask questions that most people never ask. So I appreciate it. That was fantastic. Well, it's, it's a, good to catch up with you. It's an honor. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. And congrats on how long you've been running this show. You've been doing amazing work. Thanks. That was Kat Calvin. She is at spreadthevote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.